Kat is going to come and read for us from John chapter 1. And then Rick is going to come and preach for us. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Um, This is the New Revised Standard Version and New Living Translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. The Lord. Thank you, Kat, for reading that so well. And good morning, everybody. And good morning, those who are watching online as well. Over Christmas, I've become aware of just how many people do watch us online, so Good morning uh, to you, uh, Gordon, in Kabul, Afghanistan, to uh, Jan, who's watching from South Africa, uh, to my brother-in-law, who's watching apparently in Milton Keynes, and I think to Andrew and Karis, who, if they're not here, are watching from nearby Tatsfield. Have you ever thought, folks, how hard it is to start a sermon? I say that because... I won't be the only one, I'm sure Charlie and Andy would say the same, that sometimes you stare at a blank piece of paper for a long time and think, where should I start? And it gave me an insight into what it must be like if you're a biographer. I mean, where do you start? With the person's life, with their parents, with their grandparents? I imagine that the gospel writers, after all, writing a biography of Jesus had exactly the same challenge. Now Mark, very much the man of action, was the first of the Gospels to be written. And he got most of his accounts of the life of Jesus from discussions with Peter. So he starts the Gospel with the action, with the ministry of Jesus. Matthew, who comes a bit later, well, Matthew is keen to say that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. He sees Jesus as the king of the Jews. And so his, his 
uh, gospel are full of uh, prophecies fulfilled. And he begins, of course, with the long genealogy that you heard um, Andy preach from a few weeks ago, uh, showing Jesus' lineage, not only going back to David, King David, but right back to the father of Israel, Abraham himself. Luke, writing about the same time, but using different sources, Luke uh, sees Jesus as the saviour of the world. He's the only Gentile writer in our Bible. And so Luke gives us the Bethlehem stories, the nativity stories, which we've heard only in the last few weeks. He almost certainly interviews Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then John, writing as an old man in Ephesus, decides to write his gospel. Possibly by the time he wrote this, he was, uh, tradition says, infirm and carried into the church on a stretcher each Sunday with a simple message to his congregation. Little children, love one another. But he wasn't short in his mind when he thought, where do I begin? Where do I start? I'm not going to start with Jesus' ministry or his birth. I'm going to go right back to the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. You see, in that profound sentence, John tells us three essential things about the nature of God. He firstly talks about God's eternity. Often you have this debate about, you know, who made God, who created God? And it's a silly question because nobody made God. God was always there. He was never created. John doesn't say that God appeared at the beginning of the world. He said at the beginning of the world, he was. He's always been there. God who's eternal, and God, therefore, who can unlock for us the key to eternal life. The God who is beyond the constraints of this world in every sense. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Greek translation actually means um, face-to-face with God. Jesus is a person. God is a person. He's not a force or a power. He's got personality. And in a tiny passage in Matthew chapter 11, we get a window on his personality. I've said this before from this pulpit. Jesus, just for a second, talks about his character. I am gentle and lowly. So it's interesting, isn't it, to think that God himself, the creator of the world, the one who is eternal, is by character humble. And if you think that's a strange thought, it's actually Karl Barth, the great theologian, who said it, who said God's nature must be the same as Jesus' nature, to be humble. And if God's a person, it does mean we can have a conversation with him. I think this is the time to confess that since I've been a child, I have talked to myself. In fact, so much, I mean, I don't mean in my mind, I mean literally out loud. So much so that when I was uh, about uh, 10 years old, uh, neighbours reported to my mother that they were a bit concerned about me because they'd seen me going down to the shops talking to myself. 
I think my response might have been, well, how else are you going to get sensible answers? But I often talk to God very conversationally. If I go for a walk, I often talk to God. You have to do this carefully, folks, so there's nobody else too close around. And certainly when I'm in the car, if I've got something on my mind or I'm concerned about something, I I talk to God. Try it sometime. Just talk out loud your thoughts and have a conversation with him. The other thing that Bev and I do almost every night when we lie in bed before we go to sleep, we just think before God, what are three good things that have happened to us today? I guess we'd call it counting our blessings. Yesterday, my wife commented on a beautiful singer she'd heard outside John Lewis in Oxford Street, singing Christian songs. That was one of her good things. I was just pleased that driving back from Birmingham, I had a clear run on the M25. Well, God is interested in those details of our lives. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and John says, the Word was God. He doesn't pull any punches here. He doesn't uh, compromise at all. He doesn't say he was quite like God. He represented God. He was an image of God. He said he was God. He reminds us that the Jesus who walked on this earth was indeed God himself. That his friend, John's friend, who he had known and been through so many different circumstances with, this was God. And as simply as Thomas said when he put his hand into Jesus' side, my Lord and my God. I think it's interesting to speculate why John chose this word, logos. Now, some translations of the Bible say that um, before anything else existed, Jesus was there. But of course, God didn't have the name Jesus until he came to earth. So John very cleverly uses this Greek word, logos. And I think he does that for two reasons. And the first is very straightforward. Uh, The word, as it gets translated, is the way that we communicate. So in the same way now that I'm, I'm taking the thoughts of my mind and through my words, communicating them to you, uh, John sees God as a communicating God, a God who, who wants to talk to us, who wants to communicate to us, who's, who's got things to say to us. And that suits us, doesn't it? Because we're evangelicals, we're very much people of the word. We take the Bible very seriously. It's not always easy to do that. We're not fundamentalists, we don't take it literally, but we do very, very, very seriously take it because we're people of the word. And some people say words don't really matter, it's actions that matter. And in some circumstances that's true. But words do matter. I love you. It's time to go. I've got some bad news for you. And it concerns your job. You know, these words change everything, don't they? They change our circumstances. They profoundly change how we feel about things, where we are, what we're doing. That's one reason, I think, why John calls Christ the Logos. But there's another reason too, and it's a more sophisticated one. 600 years before John, in Ephesus, the same place, there was a philosopher called uh, Heraclitus. And Heraclitus believed, 
And he's called incidentally the father of modern science because he believed that if you analyse things, if you question things, if you kept digging, you would find the essence of what life was about. So his logic said that the more you seek the truth, you can do it through questions, you can find a consistency, what he called a logos in the world. And that's where we get many words in modern science. So those who study uh, the life of plants and animals study biologos, biology. Those who look at the inner workings of the mind uh, study psychologos, psychology. Those who are into rocks and their formation and what that says about the formation of our planet look at geologos, geology. And John very cleverly says... The essence in Christ is the essence of the world. The whole reason why things are the way they are. He is the Logos. I can see some of you thinking, oh, this is great, Rick. But you've been rolling for 10 minutes now. and You've only got through verse 1. So bearing in mind there are 14 verses. Um, is this going to take us until 12.30? Or... Well, the good news is I'm now going to move to the last verse. Although not my last point. And I show this, this is very easy to pass over this. This little passage, as Kat read it, he came to make his home among us. And that, of course, is the essence of the Christmas story. That the Logos, Jesus, the Word, came and, and came as a baby at Bethlehem. That's what Christmas has been about. And appropriately, I, I show this Christmas picture of us having a good time. Here's Bev. I'm taking the picture, that's why I'm not there. Here's Bev. And then sitting next to Bev is Oksana, one of our uh, Ukrainian friends, and then my daughter Kate and her friend Ash. That was our Christmas. And isn't it true that when you have friends in your house, you do somewhat change your behaviour? So having Oksana there was, was lovely for Christmas. We didn't want her to be by herself, but we did have to speak more slowly than normal because her English isn't perfect. Similarly, I drank a little less wine than normal because I thought I ought to remain coherent, and <clears throat> which I may not otherwise have done. And, you know, when people come to our home, we behave differently. And when Jesus makes his home amongst our lives, we should behave differently too. Interesting question. Would Jesus feel at home in your life? Would he feel comfortable with your lifestyle and my lifestyle? It changes the dynamic when Jesus makes his home in our life. And he brings, this passage says, two special gifts. The first, Jesus brings light. It's there in verse 9. Um, have you ever been in a cave when they turn off the lights? It's only happened to me twice, once in South Africa and once here. You don't know what dark is until they do that. You literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. I mean, I run in the dark in these cold nights, early in the morning, at six o'clock in the morning, and you can still see your hand in front of your face. But in a cave, you can't. It's totally dark. Until some numbskull you know, gets their mobile phone out and the light then you know, shatters the illusion. It doesn't need much light for guidance. You wouldn't need much if it was pitch black. And when Jesus comes into our lives, he brings light, light to guide us, 
Light to show us the way. There have been times in my life that I've been very grateful for God's guidance. In career matters, in relationships, in decisions that I've had to take. But the light, of course, does something else. It also exposes things. This passage is very clear about that in verse 11 and verse 12. It talks about how Jesus came and was rejected by many. How the light came and was rejected even by his own people. And it's not true of everybody, but it is true of many who have not yet come to faith that the reason they are hesitant to make Christ home in their lives is because of what he'll expose. Because they know it will mean a change in their lifestyle. They know it will mean some things will have to go. And that's why they reject him. But Jesus not only comes to bring light, he comes to bring life. Um, Just look at the faces of the kids uh, where this balloon creator on the South Bank in London is having fun. They can't wait to get there fast enough in order, incidentally, to pop the balloon, even though I'm trying very hard to take photographs of it before it gets popped. You know, the the world believes that um, Christianity is all about what you shouldn't do, that God is leaning over the parapet of heaven, making sure that nobody is enjoying themselves, that you are all judged by him, and that that is Christianity, a miserable, judgmental attitude towards others and an unhappy, miserable life. And we know, I hope, that nothing could be further from the truth. For Christ brings life to us. He brings life eternal. He brings joy and happiness and fulfillment and purpose. That's what he wants to do. John 10.10 says, I've come that you may have life and life in all its fullness. And can I say at the beginning of a new year that we as Christians are sometimes very good about talking about life after death and there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes I want to talk about life before death. And at a period of the year when most of us are making New Year's resolutions and thinking about what the year will hold, can I just say, spiritually, go for it. If you've had a bucket list for years, do it rather than talk about it. If you've had hopes and things you've longed to get on with, well, get on with them. Now, I'm not saying you should be selfish or that you should be profligate, of course. But I am saying that until we get to heaven, this is the only life we have. And we should live it to the full. I love the Latin, carpe diem, seize the hour. We have lost two people from this congregation in the last 12 months. Very sad. I'm sure there are others, but I'm just thinking of two in particular. We never know when it may be our last year on earth. Let's live life and live it to the full. And one last thing. Always a good note when a preacher says that, isn't it? I love verse 12, which says, To all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, My wife and I are at a certain stage in life Well, we felt it was appropriate to rewrite our wills. 
don't worry, nothing profound has changed, except that our daughter, who is now 34, doesn't need a guardian anymore in the event of our unexpected death. And some of you, no doubt, will have been putting off or have been getting on with that rather depressing job of saying, what is our will when we die? Who's going to get it all? You know, who will inherit this? And it made us think, what's our inheritance? For to those who are children of God, we inherit the kingdom of God. We inherit it all. We get it all. We get life with Christ eternal. And we get life before the grave and life after the grave. But we have to become children of God. And it's perhaps appropriate to say, how do you do that? And I just want to say very simply that nobody becomes a child of God by accident. You'd think it sometimes that you could just sort of fall into this. But that's not the case. God hasn't got any grandchildren. It doesn't help that you had Christian parents. Some people become children of God through quite a long process over years of perhaps coming to church or studying the Bible or just becoming closer and closer to God, they find themselves in a position where they think, you know, I really am a follower of God. I I really can call myself a child of God. For me, it was a bit different from that. There was a point of time in my life when I specifically invited Jesus to come into my life. And I remember as a teenager sitting by my bedside and, and praying a very simple prayer. The beauty of that is you can be certain that whenever you invite God in your life and ask to become a child of God, um, it will happen. It's interesting, the passage says, those who believe and accept. And if I'm honest, before I became a Christian, I did believe in God, but I hadn't accepted him. It was the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And As I come to the end today, at the beginning of a new year, I wonder if you would like the opportunity to become a child of God. Now, I don't know everybody's circumstances, but I do know this, that this could be an opportunity for you to pray a prayer, and I'm going to put a prayer on the screen now, that you may never have prayed before. You may never quite be certain You may say, well, I do believe in God, Rick, but I'm not sure I've ever accepted him. And I know that many of you have prayed a prayer like this before. And I would invite you at the beginning of a new year to recommit your life to God. Pat Fulcher, whose funeral we had just a few weeks ago in this church, used to say to me, Rick, I pray this prayer every day of my life. I always found that very humbling, actually. And so, as I come to the end, let me pray that prayer out loud now. And you, if you want, echo it in your own heart. You will know if you want to be a child of God. You will know if you want Jesus to make a home in your heart. And you will know if, at the beginning of this year, it's time once again to say yes to Jesus and to say, I want my life to be worthy of you, Lord. So let me pray this prayer as I finish. Lord Jesus Christ, I give you my whole life now. Please come and live in my heart.
Wash away all my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you will never leave me. Amen. Now, if you pray that prayer for the first time, or if it was meaningful to you, I'd love you to pick up one of these leaflets. It's called, very simply, Yes. I put them at the front of the church and at the back of the church. You don't need to tell anybody else. You can just pick one up. Nobody's going to interrogate you or embarrass you. It's got a copy of the prayer in it and also some helpful suggestions about how you can move on in your Christian life. I want you to know that whenever you say yes to God, he always says yes to you. So let us all start this new year in that frame of mind.